what's the greatest victory you've ever won in your life? I know for me, when I was a kid, my church decided to have something called the Bible Olympics. And this is going to be just show you how nerdy I am. But as a kid, I studied all these scriptures very, very closely. And I got up and I was on the stage in front of everybody. And I won the grand prize, which was a boombox and a medal and a medal. And uh, Laura recently found my medal stored away somewhere. And she, she laughed at me. She said I was a nerd. But I was homeschooled, so we were always you know, way too good at things like that. But for me, that was a great victory, right? It was something that was hard earned. I worked for, it it was a a difficult thing for me. So it it meant a lot. Here we have, of course, a much greater victory being won. And here we're saying that the victory is won, not because of human effort, but because God grants the victory. And it's true of of whatever victories we have, ultimately, whether it's a small thing or a big thing, It's God who gives us success. It's God who gives us victory. And so we saw the last Psalm, Psalm 20, was a petition to God for victory. And here in Psalm 21, we see the answer to that petition, that God has granted victory in the battle, um, and the people are going to praise him for it. So this this section seems ceremonial. We can't be sure really what the events were surrounding it. There's been different ideas presented, but... It sort of includes the retelling of past victories and then the looking forward to future victories and taking that past and that future perspective and trusting God right here and now. So I love this. I love it's such an encouraging um, and confidence building sort of a psalm. So I really love this. Let's look at it together. Verses one to seven is God's strength and blessing. God's strength and blessing. It's unclear who is speaking in the first few verses. So it may be that the king is speaking of how God has blessed him. That could be the idea here. Look at verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. So this flows directly from the end of Psalm 20, right? Where Psalm 20 is all about we need God's salvation. It ends with, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And then immediately goes into the salvation of God, the rejoicing in that salvation. And so the victory the king has won here is actually the Lord's victory. So the king is giving God credit for God's salvation through this battle. Verse verse 2 it says you have not or sorry you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. So this is again the request was probably the request to win the battle and the same language was used in Psalm 20, verse 4, where the, the psalmist asked God to grant, uh, the, or the, the people asked God to grant the king's heart's desire. So here we have that heart's desire has been given. He, he wanted God to grant his prayer, and now he has, and he has this victory. Verse 3 says, For you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. So he's been given the blessing of God and authority from God to rule and to reign. He has this crown placed upon his head. It's a good reminder that kingship and authority is always derived from God. Whatever authority you have, whether it's small or big, it's just given to us by God. It's his creation. It's his authority that he delegates to us. The language here of blessing reminds us of the blessing promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that God said he was going to bless Abraham to be a blessing to the nations and that all families of the world would be blessed through Abraham. 
And so in, in verse 6, it says that God makes the king blessed forever, which again points back to that promise in Genesis 12. So this idea of blessing is that through David, through his, um, his family, through his uh, dynasty, God is going to bring that blessing that was promised to Abraham. One of the promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17 is that kings are going to come from Abraham. So here we have this fulfillment, and the kings are going to win the victory, and ultimately the Messiah, the great king, is going to bring that blessing to the world forever. Look at verse 4. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. So David asks life from God, and he gives eternal life seems to be the idea. Now, what's that speaking of? Is it speaking of the continuation of David's dynasty? Is that what it means when it says that God gives length of days forever and ever? I think this is at least part of the, the idea here, that God is speaking of continuing his dynasty, of eventually establishing someone to be on this throne forever. Look at 2 Samuel 7, where we have the very famous um, Davidic covenant passage. And it says this in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you sh- who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom, verse 16, sh- shall be made sure forever before me. <clears throat> your throne shall be established forever. So the promise here was of a dynasty, a kingdom, a throne that would last forever. So God clearly promises that, and he fulfills this through this offspring mentioned in verse 12, which points to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is that the one who would reign on the throne of God and the throne of David forever. So that's probably at least part of the idea here is that God is continuing David's line. But also I think we can take it very literally that David is going to have eternal life. We've already seen a little bit of this, right? Psalm 16, we saw some of this of that there's going to be life beyond the grave. And we know this is true because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, David had this hope, right? Because there was something that was going to happen in the future, David has hope that someday he will be resurrected, that his dead body will be brought back to life and will be indestructible forever. He has that promise and we have that promise. We can trust that the resurrection of Jesus will change our lives forever. I love this verse because David, it just says he asked life from God. But the picture I kind of think of is David in many of his circumstances about to die in danger and maybe even in this battle, right? Asking for God's to give him God, for God to give him life, but instead what God grants to him is eternal life. And he's going to go on to grant him splendor and glory and majesty, all these things. So David asks for for one thing and God gives him so much more. And that's so true of us in our prayers, that we ask God for something, but he grants us far more than we could have possibly imagined. Look at verse 5. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. <clears throat> so we see here, um, God is gracious to give David his glory, right? to give the kings his glory. It's a derivative or reflected glory that God gives to his people. Right? All glory belongs to God, and yet he allows his people to somehow partake in that. But of course, God's glory is seen most fully in Jesus Christ. The glory of the king is made great through his salvation. The Messiah's glory, Jesus Christ, his glory is great through his death and his resurrection. 
that he overcomes sin and death. He shows the ultimate victory. The salvation that Jesus would bring gives glory to God. It gives glory to him forever. In fact, the most glory-enhancing event in human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It shows that he is the one who is victorious, that he's done everything for his people to bring them their final victory. So the glory of the king is great through that salvation. It brings glory to him. Verse 6 says, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So this idea of the blessing and the presence of God is so central for David, right? It's so central in the Psalms and in the story of Scripture that God is present and God is blessing his king. Psalm 16, again, was all about that, how there's infinite joy in the presence of God, how real blessing and real joy comes from being in the presence of God. You know, Adam had this presence of God in the Garden of Eden. When, when Adam was before sin, Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden. They had this perfect relationship or this potential for this beautiful, harmonious relationship, but that harmony was broken because of sin and men were cast out of the Garden of Eden. But here, David is speaking of restoring that relationship, of being back in that kind of a relationship, of dwelling in the presence of God, of being back in the Garden of Eden. And of course, that only comes when God becomes present with us in Jesus Christ and makes a way for us to know the Father forever. Verse 7 says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So the first six verses are all in the past tense, and the last uh, verses are going to all be in the future tense. But here he switches to the present tense. He's saying what the king does right now. And this verse sits at the center of the psalm. It's the central verse of the psalm. So this is kind of the big idea. In the covenant that God made with his kings, he promised his steadfast love, his chesed, That's what God promises to them, that he's going to be steadfast in his covenant faithfulness to them. And the response that he asks for is that the king would trust God. And so David here is saying he's trusting in God and God is giving his steadfast love so the king will never be shaken, never be moved. So we see in this first section, we see God's strength and blessing. And then the next section, verses 8 through 12, we see the king's victory, the king's victory. So these verses show us that the king will be empowered to hunt down his enemy, his enemies. The, the language here, I think, really points to a messianic fulfillment. <clears throat> so whereas he's already recounted the things God has done, here he's looking forward to what hasn't yet come. And I think this kind of total victory is only going to happen when Jesus Christ comes again and, and wins it for us. Look at verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. So these curses come upon the person who is the enemy of the king. And God's going to hunt them down, right? All of them will find all of them out and destroy them with his right hand, right? The right hand of the Messiah. So in his strength, he's going to destroy the king's enemies. And when Jesus shows his face at the very end of time, this is what's going to happen, right? When he appears, 
the idea there is sort of him showing his face or being face to face that God's going to destroy. There's going to be fire. There's going to be judgment for those who have opposed the reign of the Messiah. We see the same idea in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 15, where it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's how terrifying the judgment will be on that last day, that the powerful of this earth will be praying that the rocks would fall on them and crush them so they don't have to endure what's going to come from Jesus Christ, from the Messiah when he comes in his judgment. This is a scary, scary thing. Verse 10 says, You will destroy the descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. So offspring again here is such a key word. It brings us back to Genesis 3.15 when that word is first used, that word seed or offspring in Hebrew, it's zerah. Here it brings us back to that in the battle that's going to happen between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And how we, we've seen this development of how there's evil fighting against good. It was depicted in the very first psalm of the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And so here, those who are of the seed of the serpent, those who are the offspring of evil, are going to have their offspring destroyed. They're not going to be successful. They're not going to be able to have families. They're not going to continue. God will one day cut them off forever. Again, a terrifying thing that, that we will face on the day of judgment from God. <clears throat> Verse 11 says, Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. So they're plotting against God. Again, it, all this should remind you of Psalm 2, most of all, right? Where the wicked, the rulers of the earth are plotting against the Lord and against his anointed, and God laughs at them and he thwarts their plans. I love this. It says, They will not succeed. They will not succeed. How simple of a phrase and how reassuring for us when we look at the wickedness in the world around us, right? Even how sometimes there are powerful forces, right? Very often powerful forces that are doing things to intentionally destroy and harm others. What do we do against that as Christians? Well, one thing we can do is to remember they will not succeed. The battle they're trying to fight, the war they're trying to wage will not be won by them. They will be defeated. It's impossible. They're, they're, they're waging a battle that is a losing battle. And in the end, they will just be a reminder for us of how foolish and crazy it is to oppose God. God will repay them. And here he's shooting, if you didn't notice, he's not shooting to wound. Right? He's not shooting at their, their leg to kind of you know, impair them a little bit. He's shooting at their faces. This is a kill shot. This is, see, he wants to destroy these evil people, and he will one day. Praise God for that. It's in his hands, and so we can know they will not succeed and that God will fix everything that is wrong. So what's the final response we should have in all this? Well, it's verse 13. The final, the final verse here is the people's praise. The people's praise. Verse 13 says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So it ends in a similar way to Psalm 20. When God brings the victory on that final day, our response is that we should praise him. We should praise him um, as he deserves. His salvation will bring more glory to his name. 
And so we need to respond in the right way. We need to overflow in praising God. We need to make this a pattern in our life right now. We all have things that victory is God's won already. Obviously, the, the biggest one we can think of right now is the forgiveness of sins we have in Jesus Christ, right? That, that has been accomplished, and there will be future victories that God wins when he comes to redeem his people finally and fully. And so we live a life of praising him now, lifting up his name, because he is the one who will be victorious. So just a few quick practical thoughts in light of this uh, light of the psalm. One, which should be obvious for us, which is no one is as strong as God, right? No one is stronger than God is, and so no one can bring the victory that he gives. And so we always look to him, remind ourselves of that, of how easy it is for us to fall into a mindset where we think, the battle will be won by us and by our own effort. And we forget to kneel down and to pray to God and to ask him for success. The second thing is, since God saves, don't be afraid of the enemies of God. No matter how terrifying they are, no matter how impossible it would seem to win against the enemies of God, they will not ultimately win. They are all bark and no bite. They cannot do what they want to do. They cannot oppose God. And so worry only about being on God's side, about being faithful to God, about living a quiet life, a faithful life for God. Don't worry about all these battles that you might not be able to win right here, right now. God is the one who will win the victory. We also see God's victory is complete and extensive. It it, it will be over everyone who opposes him and it'll be for all of time. And it will give us all joy as we remain in God's presence forever. And in the same way, the, the defeat of God's enemies will be complete and extensive. There's going to be, it's going to be a decisive victory, 100%. And then, of course, the last thing which we already said is when God saves, remember to turn to him in praise. And the, the things we ask of God right now, we're quick often to ask things of God and slow to thank God and praise him for what he's already done. We're too often guilty of of being those who, you know, like the the 10 lepers, of the, being one of the nine who never come back and thank God. We ask him for something, he heals, he gives, and we walk away. So we should be that one who comes back and gives God the praise that he deserves. So just a fantastic couple of, of psalms, Psalm 20 and 21. And uh, Psalm 22 is one of the most famous psalms, and we'll get into that next week.